come to your throne, into your presence this morning, we do trust that you will indeed be at work shaping us, leading us away from temptation, delivering us from the hand of the evil one. For we know that your kingdom and your power and your glory are forever, and this our hope. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8 with me. We're going to look at the back half of the chapter. I think I have in your bulletin 17, which I wanted to include, but I forgot to include it in my, uh, in my text. So I'm going to start at 18 and read the rest of the chapter. So would you please stand as we honor the reading of God's Word. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this, we, for in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And He who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers." And those whom He predestined, He also called, and those whom He called, He also justified, and those whom He justified, He also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is God's Word. Have a seat. Well, I'm going to pick up where Mifflin left off. He said, you know, Romans 8 is... Uh, one of the greatest chapters or one of the most interesting chapters in the Bible, if not the most interesting chapters in the Bible. And as I think about that whole idea, I think of the, the Dos Equis guy, the most interesting man in the world. 
You know, and here we have the most interesting chapter in the Bible and the most interesting man in the world. And what were his famous words that he left us with? Stay thirsty, my friend. So I want to tell you, you come to Romans 8, stay thirsty for what we find here in these great and wonderful truths. And, you know, Romans 8 is a, it is a, a little bit of a, a tough passage to, to break apart and kind of look at because there's so many small passages or verses in here that people have memorized, that people have hung on to, that people have gone to to defend a particular doctrine, such like that. So when we read those verses, they, they, they immediately bring to mind, if you're familiar with those, a lot of these arguments, a lot of these doctrinal statements, a lot of these positions. And, and so it's kind of a struggle because of that to understand the context. Well, why is Paul putting all this here together? And I want to try to, to get to that. Because Romans itself is this one long treatise of Paul's expounding of what is the gospel. And uh, so it's, it, you can't take it just by itself without the context of where he's come before. So just to real briefly recap what have we seen in Romans in terms of the gospel. I mean, the first introduction to us of the gospel was Paul is saying that it is the revelation of the righteousness of God. Now, that may you know, not seem like of much interest to you until he begins to go on and explain, and you need that because you are utterly and completely guilty and corrupt before God, every one of you, no matter where you are, what position you're coming from, whether you're a Jew, whether you're a Gentile, it doesn't matter. You're all equally guilty and corrupt before the Lord. So you need this righteousness of God. That's the good news that has been revealed. And then he goes on to talk about the nature of that righteousness. Well, how on earth is this righteousness available to us? Well, it's available to you because Christ lived a righteous life. And His life, His righteousness gets credited to you through faith. Why it's important to have faith as opposed to relying on your own works. He then goes on to talk about the law. Well, the law is powerless to save you. That doesn't mean it's a bad thing. It's a good thing because it's the thing that revealed to you that, yes, you are indeed guilty and corrupt, and in need of a righteousness that doesn't belong to you. So this is kind of Paul's, where he's been tracing it so far. And then as he explained a lot of those things, he gets to Romans 7 and talks about the struggle, the struggle of a person that's trying to live a life in keeping with the law on his own. And he, he can't do it. At every turn, he seems to do the very thing he hates. And, and the very thing he hates, he finds himself doing. So The question as we come to the beginning of Romans 8 is, who will rescue us from this body of death? And he says, thanks be to God, our Lord, who who brings us into Christ Jesus. And of course, Romans 8 begins, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So we have this all preceding chapter 8. And chapter 8 is beginning to launch into kind of the what next area. And if all this gospel aspect of true, the righteousness of God gets credited to the believer that Christ Himself earned, and the death that Christ uh, suffered was the death that we deserve, therefore our punishment has already been paid. The righteousness that we need before God is credited to our account as we exercise faith in Christ in this work. That paves the way, as He begins to, to explain to us in the beginning of Romans 7, for the Holy Spirit to come to you and to indwell you as a believer in a way that He never could before Christ had come. Now, it's not that we don't see the Holy Spirit at work in in God's people before 
before Christ had come, but we don't see Him indwelling people. We see Him coming to enable Old Testament believers to do certain functions at times, but the New Testament opens the door for this way to overcome not only the guilt of our sin, but also the propensity to sin by filling us with the power of the Holy Spirit to live a life that's in conformity with Christ. So, that's where He's come to. So, the, so as we get to Romans 8, and we get to this very big, this particular section, I didn't, I kind of skipped it in verse 17, so I got to go back to 17 now. I think I have it in here, hopefully. Here we go. If, this is bringing us up to this point, as a result of this work of the gospel, He has made you uh, children of God. You have become fellow heirs alongside Christ. And then He says this interesting phrase, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. So, He's bringing this point to show us on the one hand, how great it is that you have it in the gospel. Not only so, so, but God has been able to pour out His Holy Spirit to indwell you so that you will have this great promise of a future inheritance alongside Christ. In other words, He wants you to see that you have glory in your future. You have glory in your future. So, as we come to this far in this story of the gospel, it's though we've reached the final, the final end. We finally come to this place of being an inheritor with Christ, looking upon the glory that is to be ours. And then he does this thing that just seems almost counterproductive. It almost seems like Paul is being a killjoy here. He says in verse 17, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified in Him. And you think, man, of all this expounding and we've wrestling through the guilt that we bear, we've wrestling through the attempts to try to live a good life on our own, We've, we've been shown that we have a, a great future of glory, that God has solved all of these problems in our life to this point and promises such a great glory. Why now is He going to talk about suffering? It's as though He takes this turn at the back half of Romans 7. And I really think this is the context of all the stuff that we're reading in this back half. It's the fact that, yes, if you're going to, if you're going to reach that point of glory, well, the road to glory is paved with suffering. He's reminding us of that. Your road to glory is paved with suffering. So, don't be surprised as you read about this great power at work in your life, when instead of leading you to something right here and now that seems great and wonderful, if instead it leaves you to a place where you are experiencing suffering. Don't be surprised, because that's what the road to glory looks like. So, he's trying to prepare, I think, his his readers to understand, look, you have suffering in your future, but I want you to give, I want to give you some things to hold on to that's going to help put that suffering in perspective so that in the end you will reach this place of glory. Remember, that's the goal, this place of glory. So, as we go through this, I, I really want to see there's, there's three important truths that he tells us about this suffering that helps us put it in perspective. One, he says that the future glory that we face is, far surpasses the suffering that we will endure. So, we, we, we have this perspective. Sorry, changing all the wording in my notes. That's not a never good thing to do on the fly. 
But uh, uh, the idea is that when you face your suffering, this is what you're to remember, as, as bad as your suffering is, it is meant to highlight all the more the brightness of the glory that you're facing in the future. So it's not as though the more suffering you face, the more you'll experience glory. The more suffering you face, the more you will be able to see how great the glory is that's in your future. That's the idea. So, so when it is bad, you just know the principle at work here is that the glory is that much greater. This is what he says in verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. In another letter, he writes that these are light and momentary problems that we face. Light and momentary, which is a pretty fascinating thing for Paul to say, knowing what Paul himself endured in his own life, from being lashed multiple times to having to, to run for his life on various occasions, even escaping with a rope down a wall, city wall, being shipwrecked, going without food. I mean, this man had all his friends turned against him, was ridiculed, was imprisoned. I mean, you can't really imagine a, a worse experience of suffering, well, except for one guy in the Old Testament, which we'll talk about later, than Paul knew. And as he writes about all the suffering, he calls them light and momentary. How could he possibly say that except that he knew in comparison to that, the glory is so much greater that it puts all your suffering in perspective. And it, as though he wants to bolster his point, he makes another interesting statement in verses 19 through 22 about creation. He says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. That's a, uh, such an interesting thing to ponder. It's though, it's though Paul is explaining, look, you're suffering, that's true, but all of creation is suffering. You have a future glory in store for you, but so does all of creation. The glory that you're looking forward to isn't some individualized experience in some ethereal place. It is on this earth. This earth is going to somehow be made into such a way that it has a glory that far surpasses what you would ever see now. And it is fascinating as you go out and look at creation. For I know a lot of us, you guys are travelers. You like to look at different things. You've seen very beautiful places. So, for example, if you go to the mountains or if you go to the ocean side, or you, you like to observe how beautiful nature is and how beautiful creation is. But if you had to go to that mountainside and you had to try to build a life by yourself in that mountainside. There's a TV show out right now called Alone. I don't know if any of you have watched that. And that's where they're doing that very thing. They go find these beautiful spaces where if you just wanted to be an observer and go observe those, they're great. But if you have to go live there, it's a little bit different story because it's filled with all kinds of dangers and risks and things that will kill you. Everything, it seems, that will kill you when you're living in such a place. And it's as though, in, in some weird way in our minds, the more dangerous it is, the more we, we relish the experience, the more we, we appreciate the beauty of it. That's put in contrast. I think there's some way in which Paul is doing that here. As, as bad as the suffering is, as bad as the difficult things is, as bad as the threats are in this life, all the more is it meant to highlight the greatness of what's going to be overcome. 
even one day this earth, which is groaning right now, would be brought to a better place of glory. And that wasn't a new doctrine for Paul at all. If you go back and look at the Old Testament, there are times when the psalmist is calling out for creation itself to give praise. We were reading one of those just earlier from Psalm 96. Another one's from Psalm 98. He says, He has remembered His love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. So he's calling all the earth. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn. Make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the people's with equity. It is interesting if you think about, well, when exactly is this going to occur? When? Well, the psalmist says, when he has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel, and when all the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. So, when is that happening? Paul equates that when the sons of God are being revealed. When the sons of God are being revealed. And what has He just called us at, the, at the, the end of the first half of Romans 8? You have become sons of God. So, the beginning of that move away from the groaning of being under the curse to a place of glory has begun even now with the revelation of the sons of God. Somehow that begins it. So, as we face suffering, we have to remember that as bad as our suffering is, It highlights all the greater the glory that is in store for our future, not only for us, but for all of this creation. So, that's the first thing to keep in mind as suffering comes. The second thing is to keep in mind mind the work of the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit is working through suffering. And this, of course, shouldn't be a surprise at all. John Stott explains in his commentary on this chapter, he says, the sufferings and the glory belong together indissolubly, solubly, what a hard word to say. They did in the experience of Christ, and they do in the experience of His people also. So, the key to understanding our suffering in the context of the ministry of the Spirit is that these sufferings become instrumental for bringing about the glory that has been promised. Romans eight twenty eight, of course, hints at that. It's a familiar verse. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Now, this, of course, shouldn't surprise us, especially as we've seen our own, ourselves described and how bad we are in the beginning chapters of Romans. I mean, we are, we are guilty before God. We are born guilty because we've inherited the guilt of our father, our father, Adam. And we also continue to do things that violate God's law. And even when we appear on the surface to be keeping God's law, we have the wrong reasons for doing it, because we are, in in essence, trying to justify ourselves in the works that we do. By the way, that was the essence between the the chariots of fire, two, two runners, the two sprinters. You had the one who said, when I run, I feel God's pleasure, which is a very different experience from, from Harold Abrams, who was 
uh, a Jewish man who was running for England, and when he was approaching the race, he was asked, why do you run? He says, well, I look down that corridor, that four-foot corridor, and I realize I have 10 seconds to justify my existence. So you see, without the Holy Spirit at work, that's where we are stuck. So there is this great gap between where we are in our corruption and our, on our disablement and our guilt to this place of ultimate glory. How are we going to get from this place of corruption to, to glory? And if you think about any metal that goes through a refining process, it's found in such a way that it's mixed with all kinds of bad things and it has to go through the firing process to melt away the dross before it becomes this thing of glory. In essence, you're suffering. That's exactly what it is. God has to bring you through a period of refinement so that you are one day a person of glory. Now, that's the, con- the great context of what we would call the ordo salutis, what theologians like to call the order of salvation that we read about in verses 29 and 30. He says, For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. So, if we just stop right there, do you see this is where you're headed? You are being conformed to the image of His Son. And even imagine a piece of clay that's being at work, it's being pressed and pushed and squeezed and reshaped from what it was before. Now, if you, had, if you could animate a piece of clay and say, how did that feel? He might say, not very good, but I love the way I look now. I, you know, who knows what he would say? So, there's this idea of conformity that the Holy Spirit is doing, and it was predestined that that he had. That is your destiny, he's saying, that this happened. And in order that, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers, and And those whom He predestined, He also called, and those whom He called, He also justified, which we've already been reading all about in the book of Romans, and those whom He justified, He also glorified. So again, it's a reiteration. This is where your justification is leading to. It's leading to where you are glorified. You've been conformed. You've been shaped. You want to know why the Holy Spirit has been given to indwell you? This is what He's doing. This is what He's doing. So again, perspective on suffering. The more that you are suffering, the more you will see that in comparison, the glory of God is greater, that you are destined for. So we keep in mind the comparison. We also keep in mind that the work of the, work of the Spirit requires suffering in order to conform us to the image of God so that our destiny, which was set about before the creation of the world was laid, could be fulfilled, and that our justification is for the purpose of leading us to being glorified. So we keep in mind those two things, one, that the glory is greater and that the Holy Spirit is at work. And lastly, this last great section, when we face suffering, we have to keep in mind the greatness of the love of God, the greatness of the love of God. And this is important. Why do you think this is important? Because suffering, you know, so far in Paul's letter, he's been dealing with the struggles that we have in the mind of understanding how it is that we can be righteous. You know, that has really been what he's wrestling with, the theological aspect, the doctrinal understanding of how I approach things and motivate things. That's where he's been getting to. He hasn't really dealt yet in his letter with actual physical suffering in the real world until he gets to this chapter. So now he's talking about real physical suffering because those are big obstacles along that path to glory. 
Suffering is always a challenge to your faith. I mean, how many people have you known who faced some tragedy and said, I just can't believe in a God who would allow such a thing to happen? It is a challenge to faith. I'm not trying to condemn those people. I'm trying to understand those people. Look, that's, that's a reflection of us. When we face suffering, it is a challenge to our faith and believing in a good God who has something in mind that is glorious. So we have, how do we address this? Well, we have to keep in mind the greatness and the power of the love of God. So that's what he's going on to explain. And I can think of no better illustration than, of course, the story of Job. The story of Job is one who, who faced perhaps all the suffering that we could possibly imagine all at one place. He experienced it. You know, he had the social suffering, his friends continuing to heap on guilt and words of ridicule against him, his own wife turning against him, telling him to curse God and die, all of his children being killed, all of his wealth being stolen or wiped out by natural disaster. And as if that weren't bad enough, his health is taken from him so that he's left in bad health in a place outside the town where the trash is thrown because he's got boils all over his skin and he's taking the broken piece of pottery and he's scraping his skin. You know, this, this, the measure of suffering that Job experienced. And why was he experiencing that? Because in the beginning of the book, Satan, the accuser, challenges God. Well, he only loves you because of the way you've blessed him. He says, is that so? Well, let's find out. And so he allows all this suffering to happen. Now, it seems like a cruel thing. Why would God allow that? Why is he entertaining this accusation of, of, of Satan? I mean, that's kind of how we go. But as we see through the course of the suffering that there was another purpose besides revealing that, it was also doing a refining work in Job. It is interesting. I mean, we read about Job at the beginning of the book being a righteous man, you know, who loves the Lord. But that's not the full story. You know, he, yes, he's a righteous man who loves the Lord, but at that point, he has described, he describes himself at the end of Job this way. In, in verse 40, chapter 42, verse 5, he said, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear. So he was a righteous man, he believed God, but he'd only heard of him. It's an interesting phrase. And he goes on to say, but now that I've been through all of this suffering, my eyes see you. That would never have happened without the suffering that Job had endured. Now the question is, what possibly got him through all that suffering? What did Job know about the Lord? Well, he knew his love was greater than all that he was experiencing. How do we know he knew that? Well, there's another interesting chapter in his discussions early on in the book of Job, chapter 14. I'm going to read pieces from verses 10 through 15. You know, he's talking about dying. In some ways, uh, dying would be better but he also talks about it as a bad fate of man. He says, a man dies and is laid low, man breathes his last, and where is he? Till the heavens are no more, he will not awake or be roused out of his sleep. Oh, that you would hide me in Sheol, that you would conceal me until your wrath be past, that you would appoint me a set time and remember me. If a man dies, shall he live again? Of course, we know the answer to that. All the days of my service I would wait till my renewal should come, yet you would call 
and I would answer you. He's talking about being dead. You would call when I am dead, and I will answer you, and this is why. You would long for the work of your hands. You would long for the work of your hands. Job knew something about how great God's love was that allowed him to endure all the suffering that he was experiencing. He's saying, even all of this suffering, even if I should die, it can't separate me from, it can't put me beyond your call to awaken to life in your presence. That's what he's saying. And of course, how do we know that's true? Because the great thing about this is, while Job knew that in, in some vague sense, we have a so much better perspective of that than Job did, because we are looking back at what Christ has actually accomplished, and Paul is anchoring this, this understanding of the love of God in this single thing that he did in verse 32 of, chapter, of Romans 8. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He says, how do I know the love of God could overcome anything? Because the one thing that would have been the hugest obstacle between you and God, God gave. His own close, intimate, begotten Son. And we can imagine, if He was willing to do that, can you imagine anything He would not be willing to do or go through for you? And I think that's what launches, of course, Paul into this whole section. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son but gave Him him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? The answer, of course, is there is no one left. Christ Jesus is the one who died. Do you see? Not you. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, what's He doing there? Who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered, which is, of course, a reference to Isaiah talking about by being faithful to the Lord, they suffer as a result because, again, the road to glory is paved with suffering. Here's Paul's conclusion. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So, remember, the road to glory is paved with suffering. Don't be surprised, but keep in mind these three things. One, any suffering you face is only revealing the greatness of God's glory all the more. Two, because you're facing suffering, you know that the Holy Spirit is at work in you. 
You know, as uh, add on to that, I want to add a point. I'm having lunch with Tom Lott over here, and he said he quoted a verse in the context of this discussion, and it just radicalized my thinking. See, you had that. You have that gift, Tom. <laughs> he said we were talking about you know suffering, the necessity of suffering, and why is it that we see. You know, why, why is the psalmist so often talking about how he's suffering and he looks at the wicked and they don't seem to suffer any problems? You know, they seem to be do, just doing great. They never get sick. They're wealthy. They have no problems. For example, if you go read Psalm 73. And then there's this verse he quoted. He says, he says the wicked have their reward in this life. You know what they don't have? They don't have the discipline of God who disciplines His children. So, in some ways, we could look at that and think, I, would, I should be more alarmed if I don't suffer. <laughs> the suffering of God is testimony to the work of the Holy Spirit, conforming you to the image of His Son, so that you are destined for that place of glory. That's why He justifies you. And lastly, the thing to keep in mind when you're facing that suffering is that there is absolutely nothing that can separate you from the love of God. And we know that because He gave His only Son. There is nothing greater that He could possibly do that even death can't keep you away from the love of God, who will call and you will answer. So, stay thirsty, my friends, for the gospel, for it is good news. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank You so much for this marvelous chapter that puts an exclamation point on the certainty of the good news of the work of Jesus Christ, who has died the death we deserve to die, who lived the life we were meant to live, lived and died in such a way that Your Holy Spirit could come to us and begin a great work that leads to glory. Lord, help us to face suffering in light of all these truths. In Jesus' name, amen.